Welcome fellow cosmic explorers to the Cosmic Chronicles podcast, where imagination meets reality and science fiction comes to life. I'm your host, Quinn, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, James. How's it going, James? Hey, doing good. How's it going? It's going good. It's a beautiful day. As always, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. In this episode, we discuss Philip K. Dick's classic sci-fi novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? We also delve into its big screen adaptation, Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott, and its sequel, Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve, who's probably my favorite living director. We're going to discuss the themes and ideas found in each work and also examine the different messages found in each piece of media. To start off, we'll talk about the book that started it all, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is a dystopian science fiction novel set in a post-apocalyptic world where most of Earth's population has migrated to off-world colonies, such as ones on Mars. In this bleak and decaying world, most animals have gone extinct, so owning a real animal is a status symbol. The story follows Rick Deckard, who's a bounty hunter, tasked with retiring rogue androids who have escaped servitude, fled to Earth, and are in hiding. As he pursues the androids, he begins to question the nature of reality and the blurred line between humans and machines. So in the book, the characters clearly believe there are significant differences between androids and humans. Humans have rights and freedoms that androids clearly do not. How do you think the characters in this book view androids versus humans, and how do you think they define them? Well, the humans definitely view the androids as a subservient race of people, a disposable race of people. And I feel like I've talked about this several times. And Star Trek fans, please do not crucify me. I have seen a few episodes of Picard, but I have not finished it. But I know Star Trek Picard deals with this idea of a race of disposable android people. And that's something that has its roots all the way back to one of the classic Star Trek shows, Star Trek The Next Generation. There's one of my all-time favorite episodes, A Measure of a Man, where this guy comes aboard the Enterprise and he wants to take apart the android data and study his brain so that he can maybe create more datas that will maybe be on every ship in the entire Federation. And so you have another one of my favorite characters that comes in and she says to Captain Picard, what he really wants is to create a, is to create a race of disposable people. You know, people that we can just send off to do things that humans don't want to do so we don't risk human lives. So he wants data to essentially be declared as property of the Federation. That way we can just like throw him away. So I think that that is exactly what's happening in do androids dream of electric sheep? They view them as totally disposable, um, as non-human, um, non-empathetic, and also they live short lives. So they see them more akin to animals. They're more like cattle than than actual people. Even though, um, in my opinion, I don't agree. I definitely don't agree with how they view the androids. I think the androids view themselves as equal to humans, but the humans do not view the androids as equal. And I definitely don't agree with their definitions. I think that the androids are definitely sentient. I think that they might have some form of empathy, even if it's not the same as human empathy. I, I don't agree with the way humans um, see them. And I think the humans have an incentive to see them as less than them because they are the slave, slave class. And if we talk about real world slavery, just in like the United States, they came up with all sorts of reasons that, you know, black people were like less than white people to kind of justify the slavery. And I think the same thing happened in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That's why um, Philip K. Dick made the androids the way they are and made them so close so that we could very clearly see that they are close to us. 
Um, but do their differences, even if there are differences, do their differences justify them being enslaved, justify them being a disposable class of people? And I don't think they do at all. Now, in this book, humans engage with their emotions in a really odd way. There is a device known as a mood organ, which allows people to dial in what emotion they would like to feel and the amount of time they would like to feel it. Instead of allowing oneself to feel whatever they feel naturally, emotional regulation is delegated to a machine. So how do you think it affects the people of this world? Well, for one, you can't engage with others or your internal self-world, your subconscious, your internal emotional world in any sort of healthy, real way. So I think emotions definitely come naturally still to them. And then they'll they'll like lock themselves into a specific mo- emotion based on what they're feeling at the time. And I think it's almost like a form of, of addiction. Let's say that I wake up sad and then I lock myself into like, I don't know, like 12 hours of extreme happiness. And that's what I do every day. It's like I'm addicted to that happiness. Um, in the opening of this book, you see Deckard's wife wakes up sad and she like, because she's sad, she locks herself into depression. Like she doesn't feel like dialing anything other than just like six hours of depression. And I think that it's almost like it becomes an, addi- an addiction. And um, like you said, it's just a really strange way of engaging with emotions. It's a really artificial way of engaging with emotions. And I think that there's a lot in this book about um, the way and about Android emotions and how Androids engage with emotions. And I think it's fascinating that he's showing us that humans have the human way of engaging with emotions generally is just as artificial, if not even more so. So in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Deckard can test if someone is human or android by performing a test called the Voigt-Kampf test. Can you explain what that is? Uh, yeah, so the test basically measures an individual's emotional responses to a series of questions and scenarios. Um, it's kind of based on the idea that um, the androids slash replicants, as they're called in Blade Runner, lack genuine emotional responses and empathy, so they may react differently to certain stimuli than humans do. The test monitors the physiological indicators like uh, eye movement, heart rate, blush response to gauge the subject's emotional reactions. So if an individual exhibits human-like responses through the test, they are considered humans. If they fail to do so, they are identified as an android or a replicant, and they are subject to retirement. And of course, that retirement is the job of a bounty hunter or a Blade Runner, as they're called in the Ridley Scott movie. So the test kind of reminds me a little bit of the Benny Gesserit pain box test, um, which is a test for humanity in Dune. But kind of like the way the Benny Gesserit conceptualized humanity is like totally different. But it just it evokes that same idea in my mind. So that's basically what the Void Comp test is in the context of this story. Now, is empathy the only emotion that an android needs to emulate in order to be perceived as humans? Because the androids in the book, they have other emotions. Like, they have a deep desire to live and to protect themselves. Um, What do you think are the most important human aspects that androids would need to imitate or approximate in order to blend in as humans? Well, obviously, empathy is not one of them. I feel like the humans in this book barely have empathy. Like Deckard barely has empathy. And then you got Phil Resch, who's like maybe like a psychopath. So I think the androids in this book in general do a pretty decent job at approximating um, general human behavior. And I don't even know if it's approximating in most cases. I think that's just like their nature. They are very, very human-like. And I think um, it's all about blending in and appearing average rather than trying to emulate any specific human emotions or specific human attributes you more want to hide the fact that you have you know android capabilities than try and like overtly like appear human if you know what i mean so it's more just like blending in and laying low i think so in the book deckard wants to make his wife happy so he's agreed to go after the nexus six models in order to purchase a living goat for her a goat. 
which would be much more expensive than an electric one. Most people would never be able to afford a real animal, but it goes beyond purchasing animals to be pets. It's more of a status symbol. So even when the animal is impractical, like an ostrich, <laughs> people still desire them. I would never want a pet ostrich. Yeah, who would want an ostrich? It's crazy. <laughs> Why do you think possessing real animals is such a coveted status symbol in this world? Well, because everything in their world is is fake. Um, and of course, like most animals are extinct. So it's just like, you know, it's, it's cool to have something that's like almost extinct. But like you said, that even even an impractical animal, they, they still covet them. Um, it's because when everything... In a world where everything is 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 synthesized, the real is priceless. And I also think about consumerism and the consumerism of the last like I don't know like fifty years in America. We're always buying useless things. You got to have the the new couch, the upgraded cell phone, the new car. We're always uh, acquiring things. Um, I don't know, like as status symbols, just for no reason, really. We just we're like obsessed with acquiring things for fulfillment. Right. And I think that that is definitely reflected in this book. Right. It is so hard for them to find any genuine human connection, so hard for them to find any real fulfillment. And the powers that be society or whatever tell them, oh, buying an animal, buy this thing, consume this thing, and you will be fulfilled, you will be happy. So they're constantly trying to fill that emptiness by acquiring things. And Philip K. Dick just uses animals as, as an example, but it's just like, I think that's the general idea. They're trying to fill something that's missing from their lives and this completely artificial reality that they're living in. And Another note about it is, too, they don't really treat the animals like a pet. It's not like they're buying the animal like, oh, I'm going to love this animal and take care of it like like you get a puppy. No, it's more like a prop. You know, it, it really is just a symbol. It's more, it's kind of more like buying a new dining room table. It's just an object to them. So I, I definitely think that uh, Philip K. Dick is making that um, making some commentary on the nature of consumerism and how we're always consuming things and how we always need to be consuming. So whenever I think of this story or Blade Runner, my mind immediately brings up images of a decrepit city lit up with neon advertisements. In other words, a cyberpunk aesthetic. But while I was reading this book, I noticed that Philip K. Dick, he didn't really describe the world around the characters all too much. And there really isn't any indication of a cyberpunk world as we define it today. I mean, there are certain cyberpunk elements that are there, like a combination of low life and high tech, artificial intelligence, societal collapse. But these concepts are presented in a way that doesn't quite feel cyberpunk. Why is that? Well, that's because it came out in 1968, and this was the pre-cyberpunk era. So in the 1960s, in the 1970s, you had all of these science fiction authors that were really kind of rejecting the ideas of the previous generation, and they wanted to tell newer stories, different kinds of stories, and this was a movement known as the New Wave. Now, when Blade Runner comes out in 1984, it is the way it is because it has taken notes from all of the works that came out during the new wave. Um, so, you know, like the works of Samuel Delaney, you know, the works of William Gibson with Johnny Mnemonic. So it feels cyberpunk because it has taken all of those notes from pre-cyberpunk works, whereas the book was released during a time when those ideas were still developing. So it's not quite there yet. True cyberpunk was born in the 1980s um, with the release of Blade Runner and, of course, with the release of William Gibson's Neuromancer, which is considered the first cyberpunk book ever. And Neuromancer was what really establishes, like, the main cyberpunk ideas. Neuromancer was the most complete work of cyberpunk fiction up until that point, even more so than the Blade Runner movie. And speaking of Blade Runner, that makes a good segue. Let's move on to Ridley Scott's classic, based on the book by Philip K. Dick. In the book, depending on which version you read, the story is set in either 1992 
or 2021 in later versions. The movie, however, takes place in a dystopian future Los Angeles in the year of 2019. So that was not too long ago, and I feel like we're doing pretty well. Like we're not like in the Blade Runner universe yet, so I feel like we have we have um, survived the science fiction predictions, like at least this time. So Blade Runner Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is tasked with hunting down and retiring rogue replicants, bioengineered humanoids created for off-world labor on Mars. As he delves deeper into his mission, Deckard grapples with questions of humanity, identity, morality, especially when he is tasked with retiring a group of remarkably human-like Nexus 6 model replicants led by Roy Batty, including one replicant named Rachel, who he has begun to fall for. So Ridley Scott's Blade Runner is loosely based off of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, let's talk about some of the significant differences between the book and Ridley Scott's movie. Well, for one, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Blade Runner is true cyberpunk, right? So you got neon lights, cyber tech. It is in the era of cyberpunk as opposed to pre-cyberpunk. And I also think that in the movie versus the book, the nature of the androids slash the replicants is different. And the books, the androids do not really demonstrate empathy, at least not for humans. Um, in the movie, they clearly do. Um, I think in the movie, they're even more human than the book, like a lot more human. In the book, the construction of the androids is vague, but the term android to me evokes machine, right? It evokes, you know, like this is a machine with wires and metals, whereas the term replicant, the term which is used in the movie, um, kind of implies that they have a similar body composition to humans, like they bleed like humans. Um, and also the plot is very, very different uh, movie versus book. I think that a lot of characters are changed significantly. Some of them have um, the same name. Some of them have different names, but they're clearly supposed to be the same character, even if they're changed a bit. Um, one interesting change is the opera singer becomes a prostitute in the movie. And I definitely see this as Ridley Scott's taking notes from some of the authors that came out in the new wave, you know, after Philip K. Dick's book was released, um, because it's a very dark topic. And it kind of reminds me of something like the works work of, you know, William S. Burroughs, who often deal with topics like addiction, you know, sex work and prostitution. So I definitely see that coming into play here. Another big part of it is that Deckard is not married in the movie. So he never cheats on his wife like the version of Deckard in the book. So that's a pretty major difference. And the book has a lot more emphasis, I feel, on the whole animal aspect of their world. You know, there's an emphasis on the fact that the animals have mostly gone extinct. There's just more animal stuff happening in the book versus the movie. And also there's nothing like the mood organ or the empathy box or mercerism, which are things that we didn't really talk about. But yeah, none of that is present in the movie either. So pretty significantly different, definitely loosely based. The plot is is very different. I mean, it's similar. You can see the similarities when you're watching the movie, but very different. Another thing is in the book, the term Blade Runner is never actually mentioned. Deckard is just called a bounty hunter. Like, where do you think they got the name Blade Runner from? Well, the term Blade Runner, it comes from a book published in 1974 by Ellen E. Norse called The Blade Runner. And it's a book about a dystopian future where anyone needing medical treatment must be sterilized. So underground doctors set up a secret healthcare system. However, since the government has strict laws concerning the sales of medical supplies, transporting goods like medicine, syringes, and scalpels oh, I'm seeing where you're going now. becomes a dangerous trade. So the people that transport these goods are called... Blade Runners. That makes so much more sense. Right. I mean, I love the title of Ridley Scott's movie, but that makes a lot more sense. The title in the movie doesn't sense. really mean anything. It's just a job title. Right? Yeah, it's but just in, a cool in title. this book, they're literally running blades. The, the scalpels. <laughs> That's, that makes so much sense. So this kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, because the author, William S. Burroughs, um, loved this book. Really? He ended up buying the rights to The Blade Runner. And um, he wanted to make a movie, so he made a proposal for the film. He wrote a novella called Blade Runner, a movie. You've got to be kidding me. 
I'm not kidding, and it never got made. However, Ridley Scott and screenwriter Hampton Thatcher heard the term Blade Runner referenced while they were writing the screenplay. So they were familiar with the work of William S. Burroughs. So that kind of proves my, that kind of adds evidence to my, my sure theory does. that like yeah. he, the, the opera singer sex worker switch. Yeah. Well, Ridley Scott loved the term Blade Runner. Um, the original title for the film, they couldn't decide. It was either going to be Android or Dangerous Days. Oh, no. It's not very interesting titles, right? But Blade no. Runner, there's something catchy about it. So sounds he, cool. He got permission from Burroughs to use the name and it stuck. So Blade Runner is a movie based on a book, but named after a different movie based on another book. Wow. <laughs> That's just incredible. And I love to see the, that William S. Burroughs was involved in this in more of a concrete way than even I previously thought. I just thought maybe that they were like vaguely inspired by him somewhere, but they clearly had their eyes on his work. That's fascinating. That's that's freaking awesome. So another difference between the book and the movie is the character Rachel. She's drastically different in both versions, right? So let's talk about that stark difference in how she is portrayed in the book versus Ridley Scott's film and why the choice was made to change that character. Well, I think that Ridley Scott wanted to humanize the androids even more he wanted to make them really 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 close to humans so it brings into question why they're enslaved even more um and also deckard has no wife in the movie um so i think ridley scott wanted to leave an opening for love interest so that the main character doesn't have to cheat on his wife in a movie which i think might have not played very well with audiences in the 1980s um so they wanted to leave the opening for that love interest to form the book version of her is is kind of a little bit soulless not completely she does love deckard there is a quote where she says i love you if i entered a room and found a sofa covered with your hide i'd score very high on the void on the void comp test so she does claim to love him but i kind of feel like her love for deckard is more like an infatuation it's not like love the way we would think of love it's not like human love it doesn't feel like the movie version is definitely more empathetic and her love for deckard seems more like genuine love it seems more like this is the way two humans would love each other versus like this weird android love which is kind of not love at the same time and she also does that thing where just to hurt deckard she like kills the goat that he buys his wife she, she just pushes murders it, it off the roof she pushes it off the roof which is pretty freaking cold so definitely a drastically different character and i actually think and we will talk about blade runner 2049 in just a second but i actually think that the female replicant in that movie is actually a lot closer to rachel in the book than rachel that shows up in really scott's version because the android in that in the villeneuve version is a lot more ruthless and not a lot <laughs> Just, just she, she's just more the original Rachel. And, and yeah, I think that's super interesting. Definitely a lot of changes with Rachel. I feel like she's probably the most drastically altered character, um, I think, in the entire thing. There's also a part in this movie where another replicant, Pris, says, I think, therefore I am, which is an awesome quote. I think about it a lot. Um, are you familiar with that quote? Oh, yeah. I think okay. I think everyone's come across this quote yeah, it's really at, famous at some point it's a famous quote it's used a lot in sci-fi whenever we're talking about what is reality what mm -hmm. is real who am i what can i know and it comes from a philosopher from the 1600s Rene descartes um long time his, ago yeah and his famous work meditations on first philosophy where he's on a quest for undeniable certain knowledge and so he begins by subjecting all his beliefs to doubt questioning whether anything he had ever accepted as true was actually true. And he realizes that many of his beliefs were based on sensory perception, which could be totally deceptive. He considers the possibility that he might be dreaming. So all those senses could be lying to him. Yeah, because it's like the, the brain and the vat hypothesis. Like, like, exactly. like, like your That's touch, where that comes from. Your sense of like smell, like hearing it all could be like fake. He was also able to doubt like, physics and math by saying that maybe a demon is confusing him. Well, he arrives 
at a point where he doubted everything, mm-hmm. even the existence of the external world and his own body. However, he encounters this paradox that even in the process of doubt, there must be a thinking self. The act of doubt requires a thinking subject. That's where it comes from. So he says, I think, therefore I am. The very act of doubt or thinking proved his existence as a thinking entity. Yeah, because like the one thing that I know is that I am thinking right now. I don't know that you're sitting right across from me. I don't know that this table's here. I don't know that this bookshelf is behind me. The one thing that I know is that I am having a conscious experience. And so I, I and, and I love how Pris in this movie, that's how she proves that you know she's conscious. She's like, I'm conscious because I'm alive. I know I'm alive. Exactly. It's like, you, you can't convince me that I am not alive. You know what I'm saying? So I I think it was really interesting for them to use that quote. And I feel like it has a lot of weight to it, a lot of meaning. And it was really interesting, like hearing all of that, like the background of it and stuff, because I didn't know all those details. So that's awesome. (laughs) And that's part of the reason that I love science fiction so much, because I love exploring these kinds of concepts and ideas that are like really out there, because that's something that's so like kind of like esoteric and hard to think about for some people it's an old philosophical idea that we've been thinking about for a long time Mm -hmm. but sci-fi it makes it easier to consume for a modern mind yeah and i think a lot of people really reject that idea or a lot of people would really reject that idea that their like experiences are not real and it's kind of like i think it's people kind of underestimating the power of their own mind like everything that you experience is inside of your own head like it's it's just your mind interpreting the visual input that your eyes are seeing your ears are hearing and that your skin is feeling it's all inside of your head so yeah it's it's very interesting it, you could that's a whole rabbit hole that you can go down to go down so another thing about this movie is just the incredible music like the music is so beautiful like it's breathtaking it's ethereal like it's synthetic it transports you to another world it's dreamy so you went to school for music you're like Mm -hmm. a resident music expert on the podcast so how do you think that vangelis recorded the blade runner score because i how how does he do something like that (laughs) how does he make this magic this is one of my favorite film scores of all time and Vangelis is one of my favorite composers of all time. I love synthesizers and electronic music. And he's one of the OGs that really made synth and film scores an industry standard. Um, let's back up a little bit. In 1956, there was the first movie with a completely synthesized score by composer Fred Wilcox. It was for a movie called Forbidden Planet. And ah, classic. Movie- The music was created entirely on handmade electronics. So I implore everyone listening to this podcast to check out that album because it is trippy as fuck. So these electronic sounds became popular in science fiction films and horror films, most notably in the 1970s. Wendy Carlos created the score for Kubrick's Clockwork Orange using synthesizers. Another fantastic movie. She also did the score for The Shining. Wow. But even though using synth was popular and we celebrate it today, it wasn't taken too seriously back then. People thought of it as cheap. People argued that synthesizers distanced the musician from the instruments. And when used in film scores, it could never create that same warmth and emotion you get from a live orchestra. Haters. But then came Vangelis. In 1981... He created the score for Chariots of Fire. I'm sure you're familiar with that famous theme from that movie. Mm -hmm. He used only synthesizers, a piano, and a few percussion instruments. And he recorded it all in one room by himself. Wow. He then went on to win an Academy Award for that score, proving everybody wrong. So he recorded the Blade Runner score in a similar fashion. Just him and his assistant in a room full of synthesizers. Ridley Scott gave him scenes from the film on VHS and Vangelis would hit play on the VHS and hit record and he would improvise the score. So they just basically, they basically improvise the score. That's why it has so much like it just, it's coming right out of him. That's why it has so much soul. Exactly. There's a lot of soul in this movie, in the score. So he would react to the film and then he would rewind and layer more synths on top of what he had just come up with. So everything that you hear, except for a few singers and a saxophonist, 
It's just him playing his own reaction to the film. And that main synthesizer he uses is called a Yamaha CS80. So beautiful. Do you know how much one of those things costs nowadays? Uh, 20000 $70,000. Jesus Christ. It only Christ. cost around $6,000 when he was making it, though. Well, the music in this movie is like, like I said, so immersive and it has so much soul. And I feel like it definitely just like transports you and it just like it really pulls you in and you can feel the weight of every scene. It's just a great score. I think Ridley Scott chose Vangelis for a reason, because in a way, his music kind of mirrors what's going on in the film. Uh huh. You have these two characters, Deckard and Rachel, who end up questioning what is real, whether or not they are human or created to resemble a human. Mm-hmm. And unlike other sci-fi films where the otherworldly synth sounds are to evoke a mysterious or new alien landscape, the synth music in Blade Runner, it sounds familiar. It uses electronic sounds that sound like organic instruments, such as the horns or mm-hmm. the lush strings. He has these mechanized harps and metallic pianos. So the sounds you hear are like replicant instruments. Oh, wow. Like cloned to sound like real instruments. That's so profound. And what's crazy is a lot of times these electric versions of the instrument can be programmed to do more than the original instruments. Uh So so the score is way more, that that, that adds an entire layer to the movie that I didn't even think about previously. So that's amazing. (laughs) That's incredible. I really think that's super cool. Another cool fact about the making of this film is that they didn't use any CGI. Now, if you watch the final cut, they did go back and touch up some issues, but nothing major. The visuals in this film are iconic and groundbreaking. So do you think the look of this movie inspired science fiction films that came after it? Not just science fiction films, like science fiction everything, especially where the cyberpunk genre is is concerned. Yeah, this is the first time that we have like cyberpunk visualized in this way. So of course it's highly insp- inspirational. I, I, you know, I see a lot of you know, a little bit of the Matrix, you know, like Dark City, just like just so much stuff like from the '80s and the '90s is definitely inspired by Blade Runner. And, and now I think the 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 visuals of it are definitely far-reaching. And I love the look of this movie. I love how big everything is. Um, miniatures. I love miniatures in movies. I love practical effects, but a lot of times with miniatures, they look like miniatures. Here, everything looks huge. And I love how, you know, things like Deckard's apartment building looks like it was just constructed from all of these little cubes, maybe by like a machine or something. Just the the atmosphere of it, the grunge of it all, just like the the aesthetic has become so familiar because it's so borrowed from. And I just think it's just obviously influential and obviously just very 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 beautiful i think it's one of ridley scott's best looking movies it's like a feast for the eyes to just like sit back watch it on a nice screen nice remaster in 4k it's just absolutely stunning it's a feast for the senses it's like a mood organ just exactly turn it on, listen to it experience it the sights and the sounds <laughs> yeah absolutely so one of the themes of blade runner like the book is empathy But like you said earlier, the book says something different about empathy of the androids replicants than the movie does. Near the end of the movie, there's a scene where Deckard is hanging off the building. How do you think this scene illustrates that difference? Well, I think that in the book, at the very least, it's saying that these androids have a different type of empathy from mankind and that they don't experience empathy the same way if at all and i think the movie is very clearly saying that they do they are just they can be just as empathetic as people like we see deckard throughout the movie consciously making the choice to be actively unempathetic he's just like he's killing the nexus six models he doesn't care how much they beg he's taking them out and then by the end of it you have batty who has every reason to let Deckard die. Deckard killed all of his friends. Deckard killed the woman that he loved, Pris, and he's about to die anyway, so why not just take him with him? But he doesn't. He saves Deckard. He extends effort to save Deckard, like showing Deckard 
what Deckard showed none of the Nexus 6, 6 models, like empathy. And I think that that's what convinces Deckard ultimately to go back and to like accept loving Rachel because he sees these androids really are just like us. He really does see it. They can show just as much empathy as we can. So that's really Scott, you know, solidifying the difference and concretely saying they are like us. They can feel just because they only live for a short amount of time, just because there are certain differences doesn't mean like that, you know, that, that there's something fundamentally different, you know what I'm saying? And this is definitely an idea that gets expanded upon in the sequel Blade Runner 2049. And we should segue right into that right now. So Blade Runner 2049 is set three decades after the original film. So you have Blade Runner K, Ryan Gosling, who is a replicant himself, embarking on a quest to locate the long-missing former Blade Runner Deckard, played by Harrison Ford yet again, after stumbling upon a secret with the potential to disrupt what remains of society. K's journey leads him to unravel the complex web of deception, ultimately revealing a shocking truth about replicants that challenges the fundamental definitions of humanity and artificial life. It may in fact be possible for replicants to reproduce with humans, no less. Blade Runner 2049 was released 35 years after the original. So much has changed about how people perceive cinema, how cinema is made, and what creators are trying to say with cinema. Blade Runner 2049 is set in the universe Ridley Scott created, but how does this movie expand on the first? Well, okay, visually, it literally expands on the visuals, so it's way bigger, way more just like sweeping scenes of like the landscapes and the cities. Uh, it shows way more of like dystopian California and the deserts and the wasteland. It's just absolutely just huge. Like Villeneuve, that's why he was perfect for this. And that's why he was also perfect for Dune. And that's why he's also perfect for Arthur C. Clarke's Rama in the future. Because he knows how to go big with his, his, his visuals. Uh, and also in the movie, the replicants, like I said, are now sometimes used as Blade Runners, which I think is a natural progression of their society because already they're disposable people. They don't value them as much as humans. And we see the original Blade Runner, how how Deckard almost gets killed several times by these Blade Runners. They're very, Deckard almost gets killed several times by these replicants. They're very, 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 very strong. Um, so it just makes sense that you would send replicants to go after replicants. It's a dangerous job. Why, um, waste a human so i feel like that's a natural expansion and it continues to expand the idea of you know like the differences between replicants and humans and if those differences are really all that significant and it expands on the idea of maybe i think therefore i am and introduces like some new um characters and types of entities like the ai girlfriend that we'll talk about later so it just takes all the themes from the original movie it widens them out and it also develops new ideas to go on top of them and i think it's done very effectively i think it's done exactly the way a sequel should be done where it totally respects the original but it also introduces new ideas and also like says something new about the old ideas between blade runner and blade runner 2049 a major event occurred which changed a lot of how society operated in 2022 there was the blackout, which wiped all of their electronically stored data. So how do you think something like this would affect the real world if it happens today? Well, let's see, two weeks of darkness. I think in that two weeks, when the power's out, that we will see massive civil unrest because people aren't going to be sure if the power's going to come back on. No one can communicate with each other. Um, and also, I think that in our modern society, people are so ready for the end of the world. It's almost like people want it to happen. So many people like fantasize about doomsday and what they're going to do in doomsday. And I think that for a lot of people, doomsday will be activated in that two weeks of darkness. And a lot of people are going to use that as an opportunity to do really horrible things. There's going to be a lot of looting murder like other horrifying things people are going to use this as an opportunity to maybe like harm groups of people that they don't like for like whatever reason i think that in that two weeks 
it's going to be really traumatic for everybody because we're so dependent on, you know, power and having electricity. And we're so dependent on like being able to communicate like quickly with each other. And because we're so depending on it, dependent on it, snatching it away is going to have dramatic effects, even if it only lasts for two weeks. So after that two weeks and after like all of that scarring, when the power comes back on and all of the data is erased, then <laughs> things get even worse because now the data is gone and that's the banking system. That's our economic system. It's all digitized these days. And, oh, you had 500,000 in the bank. Oh, where is that 500? No, there's no record of that. You know, paper records exist, but the paper records do not exist in the capacity that they once did. Physical records are no longer as common as they once were. So all of that wiping of information is going to destroy economic system. And then we, we have, we've also got things like, you know, digital infrastructure that's going to collapse, right? So if the data is erupted, that's programs that were sustainable for, that were important for the sustainability of the internet, you know, things like Google, how damaged is Google going to be? Are people going to be able to even do Google searches? Does the software even exist anymore? Or did it all get wiped in the EMP? So I feel like our entire digital infrastructure is going to be da damaged. Our economic system is going to collapse. There's going to be civil unrest. No one's going to know who has what money. And it's just going to create a world of chaos that I think is going to be even more significant than what we see in Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. This is going to be um, a societal disruption, the likes of which we've never seen. Um, yeah, so that's really scary to me, the idea of an EMP hitting, because I really, truly feel like the destabilization would be astronomical. It's terrifying. It's and terrifying. I think of this movie every time we have a blackout. <laughs> and there was one time recently there was a blackout, but it also took out our Wi-Fi and our cellular, cellular data. So we couldn't communicate with anybody and we didn't have any power. I remember thinking to myself, how long is this going to go on for before I you know, get in my car and go to someone else's house. Like, what's what's the plan? I need to start coming up with a plan just in case this is just like Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, because, like, what would you do? It'd be a long time before you really know, because I feel like people don't really, like, talk to their neighbors like they used to. I feel like, I don't know, time, a, a significant amount of time would pass before people would start to realize, wait a minute, the power is not coming back on. Wait, the TVs are not coming back on. Like, I can't communicate with anybody. Yeah, I, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I was getting my shoes and my keys. I was getting ready <laughs> to leave the house, to go to, to go to a friend's house or my parents' house. And then the power came back on and I was able to call everyone and it was just happening in the town that I was in. So luckily there was no dystopian blackout and all of my information saved on my computer was still there. Thank God. So the first Blade Runner movie is essentially about how androids really want the same things as we do. To love, to be loved, to live. What is Villeneuve's movie about? I think Villeneuve's movie is essentially about the same thing. Like I said, it takes those ideas and expands upon them. But I think that the main theme of this specific movie is identity. So you have the main character, Kay. Is he Kay? Is he Joe? Is he Deckard's son? Is he just a normal replicant? Who is he? He's just Ken. <laughs> He's just Ken. <laughs> He's Kenuff, you know? He's Kenuff, <laughs> right? So, like, it's about him trying to find his identity. And I think that's the main theme of the movie. The main theme of this movie is identity and what makes you who you are that's the main idea that runs its way throughout this entire movie but i also love the music in this movie oh yeah i think han zimmer brought like an epicness to the blade runner universe that the original didn't have even though i love the original music in your expert opinion <laughs> okay how does blade runner 2049 the music compare to the original because like i said it's it i think it's so epic and i just love what he did with it and i just like i get chills listening to it right well i'll start with this this is my favorite hans zimmer score but we okay. should also know that hans zimmer wrote this with benjamin wallfish so it was two composers that worked on it together because they only had a month to get it done what the original composer him and denny villeneuve had artistic differences was that the guy that did arrival it was the guy johan johansson who did arrival Denny Villeneuve had a different vision. I think that he knew that whoever did the score, it was never going to compare to Vangelis. 
And I think if if you took Vangelis' music and tried to put it to Denis Villeneuve's vision, it would sound cheesy. It would, right? yeah, absolutely, because mm-hmm. it's like it's all that like it's almost like the the tr- the musical tropes have already been so established that you really, if you're gonna do a sequel. Denis Villeneuve is a visionary director, so if he's going to do a se- sequel, he doesn't want to just like he's not about to like give you like Ghostbusters, like the se- you know like Ghostbusters twenty eighteen or whenever it was. He's not about to like give you the same beats, the exact same movie with just like a new skin. He wants to evolve it. He wants to move it to a new level, and that requires like having a score that's respectful to the original, but like elevates it to something new. Right. So Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish's score it really fits a modern. Hollywood mm-hmm. movie. It absolutely does. Mm-hmm. So both both scores are fantastic. Um, I would say that Vangelis's score, it's more interesting to my brain. I feel like it has a lot to say. There's more movement. There's more movement in it. It, it kind of, and this is, it's a product of its time. So a lot of film scores in the 80s, they tell the audience how to feel. True. Right? They show you the emotions. And Hans Zimmer's score for this movie and most of his movies, it's more ambiguous. Well, so Dune it, is very like feel right. this. <laughs> Dune is very like I feel like that Dune is like almost like the opposite because the Dune score is very like feel this right now, like you're gonna feel it, feel it exactly, and that's why he won the Oscar for that mm-hmm. for that film. That's it's highly emotional. It's, uh-huh. it's in your face. Yeah, it's like going to a rock concert. Absolutely. Um, a Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That score is just so ethereal. It really and ambient. is. I'm a, I always turn it on when I'm reading sci-fi. Well, my favorite um, sound in that score is like towards the end when they're going over the wall and that like oh, bendy sound that it makes sounds so cool. So the concept of the replicants having false memories is briefly explored in the original film, and it's greatly expanded upon in 2049. We even witnessed the process of memory creation. What do you think these films, specifically the sequel, are trying to say with this idea of implanted memories? Well, it all goes back to that idea of, of identity, right? Because memories make who you are. Your personality is based on the things that you've experienced your memories so it's almost like asking the question like does it matter if the memories are fake Um, because we see like too that the memories are created by an artist the memories literally are art so they're coming from this person's like soul and they're based on some of them are based on memories that she has experienced so they're coming from a, a real place right so um like I said, it's all about identity. And so Deckard is struggling with his identity throughout this. Like, who am I? Am I Deckard's son? Am I the special chosen one? In a way, he is connected to Deckard because the memories of Deckard's actual daughter are inside of him. So um, so in, in, to some sense, like, she is a part of his identity. And lots of sci-fi deals with the idea of false memories or implanted memories. You know, Total Recall very famously deals with that concept. But I like the way it's handled here because though they are false memories, like I said, false, it's it's, it's almost like a misnomer to call them false because they are false, but there's, there's realness behind them. There is real soul and art behind these memories. And I think it's just an interesting, like, to explore. And I really love it when sci-fi movies explore topics like this because they're a lot more esoteric and weird to think about. And they really make you, like, question, like, who you are and who would you be if you had another person's memories? So right now, AI is a huge topic in the real world. People are quite literally having conversations and building relationships with artificially intelligent yeah, algorithms. Absolutely. In Blade Runner 2049, Kay has an artificial girlfriend named Joy. Joy. And currently in the real world, our AI is just that. It's artificial. It's, it's dumb. It's not actually intelligent, nor can it actually feel or reciprocate relationships. I know. We interviewed an AI. He was kind of a jerk, but whatever. Right. But in the Blade Runner universe, the lines are a bit more blurred. Replicants are made things, and yet they are most certainly alive, and they most certainly feel. Um, That being said, do you think that Joy actually had feelings for Kay? Do you think she really loved him, or was she simply working based on her programming by approximating love as best she could? That is a really good question, and it's definitely hard to tell. I mean, you see all those 
billboards of joy. Um, she's like, I'll be everything that you need me to be or whatever. So there is something that is kind of suggesting that maybe she is just just being what he needs her to be at that time. But if you if you're asking what I think and what I intuitively feel watching this movie, I feel that she does love him. I feel that she is sentient. I feel that she feels love. I feel that I feel that she is alive. Now, like you said, the lines are a lot blurrier in Blade Runner universe versus our universe. And in a world where we can create replicants uh, and things that are so cl close to humans and still enslave them, it would not surprise me if we also can make, you know, AI life forms that are totally alive and then also like enslave them essentially. Um, and there's a few things in this movie to me that indicate that Joy is alive and feels love because when Kay is knocked out, when Kay is hurt, she is distressed. She is in pain and she is hurt by the fact that she can't help him. And, you know, the whole like weird sex scene that happens, like she's doing that for him, like out of love for him, because, like so that they can connect with each other in like a in, in like a special way. So it is totally possible that most joys are just approximating love or it's totally possible that she was in, in the beginning just approximating love. But sometimes what happens is, is is things emerge like from those ones and zeros from all of that complex code maybe something like love emerged maybe sentience and love and actual feelings for joe emerged so um i definitely think that the movie is implying that she loved him but if that somebody else's interpretation was different i would totally get why they think so because there was stuff that hints the other way too and it's that's the whole point like well, we're never gonna know it's like you're never ever gonna know if she did or not and, and that's the kind of scary thing but that's what makes it really interesting i think i'm gonna take the side and say that she was well programmed mm -hmm. um, she even says in the in her advertisement on Joe. her bill billboard she says, I'm what you need me to be. So when you're saying there's that that scene where he's trapped in the car and she's trying to wake him up, to me, that's just an act. That's what he needs. That's the right? He needs that, um, even even the, the love, he needs that emotional connection for himself to carry on. It's what he needs. Well, I don't think she really feels anything. Here's the real question, too, like even if she doesn't, does it matter? Right. So if she approximates mm -hmm. like love for Joe, like to the point where like you can't even tell the difference, then functionally there is no difference. Right. Yeah. Like just even if she is not having like an internally conscious experience, like as far as anybody can tell, she's in love with Joe. So it's like, is there even a difference? That's why I love the whole do androids dream of electric sheep like universe and the movies that come out of it, because they're always like asking those questions, like just because something is like quote unquote fake does it really really matter if it's fake you know what mm -hmm. i mean what does fake even mean right so i did i did a video essay uh months ago on do andrew stream of electric sheep on quinn's ideas and then we talk about this very very idea like what 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 does real and fake even mean you know so it, it's just fascinating concept now in the blade runner universe replicants are a slave class they are considered inferior to humans this is an idea we learn in 2049 that the powers that be try to maintain. If it ever became known that humans and replicants were more similar than people generally believed, then the ethics of their enslavement could be brought into question. What do you think would occur if the truth was revealed about the replicants? Well, theoretically, societal collapse. Like humans are totally dependent on replicant servitude. They need these replicants, right? Their society is already on the brink of collapse anyway. So like if, if replicants are no longer in servitude, then I don't know how their society is even going to function anymore. But that's theoretically. In truth, I think that what would essentially happen if it was revealed that replicants and humans could breed and that replicants would re could reproduce is that society would sweep it under the rug because we need these replicants to be enslaved. And really, I think that most people don't care whether or not they're humans anyway. They don't care whether or not um, the replicants are alive anyway. They wouldn't care anyway um, because their comfort is more 
valuable to them. It's more convenient to just sweep it under, under the rug. So I think that the replicants might gain freedom in the long run if it was revealed, like decades and decades and decades in the future, but it's not something that would happen instantly. It's something that they would have to fight a very long time for, and society would fight them on this. You know, I think um, a lot of people have this idea that, oh, the secret's going to come out and that everyone's going to like support the replicants and be like, we've got to save these poor enslaved people. But I think that's not where it would go at all. Well, towards the end of the original, there is this brutal yet triumphant moment where the replicant Roy kills his creator. And nothing like this happens in the book. Villeneuve introduces the character Nyander Wallace, who has taken up the role of replicant manufacturer. And Wallace is shown behaving far more maniacally than Elden Tyrone. It's freaking evil, man. <laughs> and yet we never get a similar triumphant moment. Nyander Wallace is never seen defeated. So what do you think Denis Villeneuve is trying to say here? Villeneuve, Villeneuve, Villeneuve. This man is just, he's brilliant. Like, he's a genius. He's a sci-fi visionary. I love him so much. I love Ridley Scott. Rid Ridley Scott is obviously legendary. But I don't think he could resist having that triumphant, violent moment for his 80s sci-fi movie climax. Like, he kind of needed that moment, perhaps. But Villeneuve wanted to be more realistic with it. He knows that, you know, this guy, Wallace save the world basically with these replicants right the replicants are a necessity um for the survival of the human species and this guy's basically like a trillionaire you don't you don't just sneak in and crush his skull that's not the way it works and even if you do we see the guy's skull gets crushed in the first movie tyrell and what happens another one just pops up in a few years so that it's not the way it works anyway I think Villeneuve is saying that revolution is a slow, slow process, but the seeds are there. The knowledge is out there. The The girl is alive. She is alive. Deckard's daughter is alive and people know about it and it's out there. And he's saying that it has to begin somewhere, but like the revolution does not take place in like in the runtime of a movie. It's something that we have to fight for continuously and it's going to take years and years and years so he doesn't give you that triumphant moment because there's really no triumphant moment to be had right like the stories of people like wallace don't end triumphantly like we think we both watch succession and it just reminds me it. of logan roy right everyone expects it to be like everyone like so many people expected the ending of succession to be like this big explosive blowout right. but really what happens is these people just kind of fizzle out and they're unfulfilled in life and then they become nothing and they're replaced by someone else. and then they're just replaced it's it's never this big thing where i'm gonna crush the skull of my oppressor you know it, it's it's always way more subtle and that's why i appreciate villeneuve and i appreciate his subtlety and i appreciate the subtlety of his work and i really do think that we are in a new sci-fi renaissance as far as sci-fi cinema sci-fi books and in like the last 10 years we have really been on this like upswing and Blade Runner 2049 is is so far up there for me. It's probably probably my favorite Villeneuve movie. Over Dune? I love Dune. I love Dune. Mm -hmm. But 2049 for me still still is the master. Still is the go. It is just so good. That's Villeneuve at his absolute best. And I hope Dune Part 2 changes my mind. But for right now, Blade Runner 2049 for sure. Wow. You heard it here, guys. Quinn's idea is like Blade Runner 2049 more than Dune. Wow. Wow, indeed. So the story of Blade Runner isn't quite done. You know they're making a television show called Blade Runner 2099. So we're taking it another 50 years in the future. Any like, guesses of what's going to happen? I have no idea, but let's see where we've how they've advanced in 50 years. Like I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they advance the story and they continue to move forward and they don't like feel like the need to like stay like where they are but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's set further in the future because like our idea of cyberpunk has like advanced and cyberpunk in our mind has become more technologically advanced in our in our fiction as our world has become more cyberpunk so we need mm -hmm. to have like it needs to be further in the future you know what i'm saying so right. we can have more advanced technology and things going on so we will definitely give that show a try and see what it's like but you know with with anything new these days, I'm kind of like, I always take it with a grain of salt because you never know how they're going to crap on something that you love. So, yeah.
All right, guys, that has been another episode of the Cosmic Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Make sure you also subscribe to our YouTube channel. We will be posting episodes every other Friday. Thanks so much.